Hello, everyone. Welcome to Bible Quest, the Wednesday edition. You can go to BibleQuest.org for more information, but right now we are streaming live on YouTube. And it is so good to have our panelists back with us today, live and in person. And so with that said, Jeff, it's all yours. It has been a while since we've been live. Uh, we were away involved in other things for a few weeks and, and kind of in between. We had some sickness and one thing or another. So it seems like it's been a long time. But we're going to talk about the Lord's Supper today. Um, it's uh, Significance and Frequency, I think is how we titled it. Good afternoon, Joe and Chase. Hey, afternoon. So, guys, uh, as we talk about the Lord's Supper, let's, uh, is that what we called it? It's Significance and Frequency or it's Meaning and Frequency? What did we call the title of this webcast? Uh, I think Significance and Frequency. Okay. Let's, let's just start in. Let's first of all talk about its significance. And maybe we'll roughly divide the, the time up into halves. We'll talk about the significance for the first portion and we'll get to the frequency of the observance of the Lord's Supper in the second portion of our discussion. Um, so as we talk about the significance of the Lord's Supper, that's going to that's gonna cover a lot of bases. Um, some people have a very ritualistic concept of the Lord's Supper. Some people have a very um, supernatural, literal kind of idea. The, in the Catholic Church, of course, it's taught that when the police... Can, can, I, can I say the word? Jump in. Yeah, can, transubstantiation. Did he get it right, Joe? I'm impressed. Okay. Oh, thanks, guys. <laughs> you guys get to use all the big words on this podcast, so I, I wanted to break that one out. Trans, transubstantiation. And we did not we did not tell him that ahead of time, right, no. Joe? No, no, no. I don't even know if he was looking at it when he said it. I don't. I'm not aware of him practicing that. I, I think. <laughs> <laughs> that refers to the idea that when the priest blesses the the host, as the Catholic Church calls it, the bread, that it literally, literally becomes the body of Jesus Christ with the blood in it. Um, and so that's that's one idea. But let's let's just jump in. What does the Bible say? If we wanted to sit down with somebody, you guys have both done this, I'm sure. You, you're sitting down with somebody, teaching them the word of God, and they really have no idea what the Lord's Supper is about. How do you start? Where do you start to, to help them understand the significance of the Lord's Supper? Well, it's going to come up naturally if you're reading through the Gospels with them. And uh, I don't know where you guys like to start, but I like to start in Matthew 26, because before Jesus even institutes the Lord's Supper, you get to talk to them about the Feast of Unleavened Bread and the Feast of the Passover that are approaching. Right. And that kind of sets the stage for the emblems that Jesus will use for the Lord's Supper. So I like to talk a little bit about that with the Feast of Unleavened Bread and Passover. I don't know about you guys. Yeah. yeah, I think that's exactly right. I, I was getting ready to say this same answer, uh, so I'm glad I got it right, Chase. Um, <laughs> uh, that uh, you know, there was there was precedent in the Old Testament for meals uh, to be observed and uh, fellowship or communal meals, and the Passover was one of those, and uh, that leads then into this most significant meal of scriptures. You know, in this passage in Matthew chapter 26, when Jesus takes the bread, I mean, you just think about it from the standpoint of the disciples' perspective. We don't have any indication that they saw this coming, the, the, the observance of the Lord's Supper. They're eating the Passover meal, which went back to the, the Israelites coming out of Egypt, and that was an annual thing that they did. They're doing this the night before Jesus is crucified. Uh, he knows he's about to be crucified. And 
it says in verse 26, as they were eating, Jesus took bread and blessed and, and broke it and gave to the disciples and said, take ye, this is my body. And he took a cup and gave thanks and gave to them, saying, drink ye all of it, for this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many unto remission of sins. These are Jews. And the book of Exodus, of course, is, is hugely significant in the, the beginning of the Jewish nation. When Moses had led the people out of Egypt, back in Exodus, the 24th chapter, um, in verse 6, it says, Moses took half of the blood and put it in basins, and the other half of the blood he sprinkled on the altar. And then he took the book of the covenant and read it in the hearing of the people, and they said, all that the Lord has spoken, we will do, and we will be obedient. They're entering into a covenant with the Lord here. So Moses, this is verse 8, so Moses took the blood and sprinkled it on the people and said, behold, the blood of the covenant, which the Lord has made with you in accordance with all these words. So I, I imagine that the apostles would, when they heard Jesus say, this is my blood of the covenant, that would remind them of the covenant God made identifying mm -hmm. Israel as his people coming out of Egypt. And it was sanctified by blood, blood of animals. But now Jesus yeah. says and something so similar. I, I think that must have been profound in the years of the disciples. Yes. And the importance of blood, blood signifying death, that there was some kind of sacrifice that happened in order for this covenant to take place, um, I think is a really important idea because Obviously, with the blood of Jesus, his death, his sacrifice kind of carries all the same ideas as well. Luke's account of this um, makes it very clear Jesus intends for his disciples to do this. In, yeah. in Luke um, chapter 22, um, he says in verse uh, 20, the cup in like manner. No, I'm sorry, verse 19. He took the bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and gave to them, saying, This is my body, which is given for you. This do in remembrance of me. And the cup in like manner after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood, even that which is poured out for you. Um, so that language, this do in remembrance of, of me, Paul quotes that, essentially. He uses almost the same language in 1 Corinthians 11 and takes it as something that the disciples were to continue doing, not, not just doing that one occasion with the Lord the night before he was crucified. Yeah, um, and maybe just thinking about that significance, uh, doing this in remembrance of him, uh, and I, I think this would fall into this first half of our discussion, uh, the, the Lord's Supper the significance of it is to remember Jesus, not to remember the institution of the Lord's Supper. Yeah. Um, yeah. I, I think sometimes we might be, tend to get short-sighted in that and, and emphasize the institution of the Lord's Supper <clears throat> as opposed to uh, what it actually, the, the significance of it or what it represents. I also... As we think about significance of it, uh, we've already emphasized how there was Jewish precedent for this kind of celebration and this kind of feast. But just zeroing in on the idea of a meal or a feast as a community together, I think, is an important thing to think through as well. Yeah. So that word, no, that word community that you use 
of course, it's related to the idea of communion. A community is a group of people who commune. They share with one another. And in the Lord's Supper, there's a sharing uh, between the participant and the Lord. And there's a sharing also between the participant and the other participants. So kind of a vertical yeah. communion and a horizontal communion. And yeah, and, go ahead. Well, and when Jesus instituted it, I mean, one of the things he said when the hour came and he reclined, this is in Luke's gospel, 22 verse 15, he said to them, I have fervently desired to eat the Passover with you before I suffer. For I tell you, I will not eat it again until it is fulfilled in the kingdom of God. So this is something Jesus wanted to do. It says he was, he was longing fervently yeah. to be able to partake of a meal like this with his disciples. And maybe just to put a passage with this community discussion, 1 Corinthians chapter 10, Paul says, I'll pick up in verse 16, uh, encourage people to read the greater context. The cup of blessing which we bless, is it not the communion or fellowship uh, of the blood of Christ? The bread which we break, is it not the communion of the body of Christ? For we being many are one bread and one body, for we all partake of that one bread. And he goes on and, and discusses even more of it. Let, let me just go ahead and read. Um, Observe Israel after the flesh are not those who eat the sacrifices partakers of the altar. What am I saying then? That an idol is anything or, or or what is offered to idols is anything? But I say that the things with the Gentiles sacrifice, they sacrifice the demons and not to God. And I do not want you to have fellowship with demons. You cannot drink the cup of the Lord and the cup of demons. You cannot partake of the Lord's table and of the table of demons. Yeah, and that's the passage I was want to go to too. This is the passage you you went you took it us here because this is where we get the communion language, right. and 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 in the larger context, Paul is warning the Corinthians against idolatry. You cannot participate in the idol feast and also participate in the Lord's feast. Uh, you can't share in both. It's interesting that early in this chapter he draws a comparison between the Corinthian Christians and the Israelites of old, saying that the Israelites of old were baptized unto Moses in the cloud and the sea when they came through the, the sea and Pharaoh's army was drowned, and that they had a spiritual food and a spiritual drink. And what he's trying to do is set up a parallel. You Corinthians, you've been baptized and you have a spiritual food and spiritual drink to warn the Corinthians, don't make the same mistake the Israelites did and think that just because you've been baptized, you eat the Lord's Supper, that that you can do anything you want. But what I want to point out is Paul puts these two things together, baptism and the Lord's Supper. And if you think about it, what he's, what you just read, Joe, in first Corinthians chapter 10 and verse 16, the cup is a communion of the blood of Christ. The, the bread is a communion of the body of Christ. This is referring to Jesus death. Baptism is into Christ's death. That's what Paul argues in Romans in Romans six. The Lord's Supper is an expression of our sharing in the Lord's death. It is baptized believers, people who have been baptized into Christ's death, who can legitimately participate in a feast that says, I share in Christ's death. And so we ought to think of those two things together. Well, and so I don't know if we want to go even further, but in chapter 11 in verse 17, he says, now in giving this instruction, I do not praise you since you come together, not for the better, but for the worse. And he goes on to talk about the divisions among themselves, but also the problems with the Lord's Supper. But I think one of the things you can deduce from that is that their coming together was supposed to be for the sake of the Lord's Supper. And so 
again, talking about the significance of the Lord's Supper, the early disciples, we're not talking about frequency yet, but the significance, their whole week was built around coming together for the Lord's Supper, according to Paul. But of course, the problem with Corinthians is what they were doing. Paul is saying that that doesn't even look like the Lord's Supper. But they should have been coming together for the Lord's Supper. Yeah, I want I want to put a peg in that because we're going to need to come back to that when we talk about frequency because we're going to see that idea again in Acts chapter twenty. They came together to eat the Lord's Supper, and, and I, I I agree. I think you're right here in First Corinthians eleven. There's an implication that's what it was supposed to be here. All right. So thinking about the significance of the Lord's Supper, then anything else that you you want to Add. I, I guess I would just go back to one thing, talking about it's a vertical communion. It's a communion with Christ. We are saying we participate in his death. We've been baptized into his death. And we, 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 we eat his blood, his body and drink his blood in a, in a uh, ceremonial way. But it is a supper. And throughout the Bible, there is this, it, it's a ceremonial supper. It's not a supper to satisfy our hunger. Paul makes that clear in 1 Corinthians 11. But throughout the Bible, there's this emphasis upon eating together as an expression of fellowship, as an expression of uh, of commonality. Um, and you can think of the passages of hospitality in the Old Testament. You can think about the warnings against uh, eating with certain people in the New Testament. You can think of uh, Acts chapter 10 and the unrighteous indignation of certain believers when they heard that Peter had eaten with Gentiles. Um, all of those things emphasize the fact that eating together sends a message of, of unity and communion, having something in common. And in the Lord's Supper, it is a supper to the extent that we, we do this together and express our commonality um, in that way. Anything else you guys want to bring up there before we go on to frequency? So let me uh, ask your thoughts on, do you think there is a legitimate tie to John 6 or not in regard to this uh, uh, partaking of the Lord's Supper? Yeah, boy, I get in trouble every time somebody brings this up. Um, and I think that's your, your goal here is to get me in trouble. <laughs> well, I, I, you know, that, that's why I'm on here. Um, I don't think I don't think Jesus is talking primarily or only about the Lord's Supper in John six. I think he's talking about much more than just the, the ceremony, than just the the first day of the week observance. I think when he talks about eating my uh, eating my flesh, um, that I am the bread come down out of heaven. Uh, you could say he's talking about everything that's represented by the Lord's Supper. Uh, but it's hard for me to imagine that in his mind, he's not thinking about the fact that he's going to expect his disciples to have this ceremony where they eat the the bread and drink the, the cup representing his blood. And so if if it represents, as you said, you know, everything about him, uh, you know, John goes, uh, Jesus goes on in John six to say that it represents believing in him. Um, mm -hmm. uh, and, uh, so when we have the Lord's supper, we do this in remembrance of him. That seems like there's a pretty good tie there, believing in him and remembering him. And then also in John six, um, maybe I'll get you out of some trouble and get myself in some, 
uh, in John 6 and verse 11, it says, and Jesus took the loaves and when he had given thanks. And, uh, you know, that's the same language that you have in uh, the observance of the Lord's Supper. Yeah. Um, and so it's there's there's kind of an echo there. Mm -hmm. um, so we don't have the Lord's Supper specifically talked about in John, correct? No, no. And so. No. It's kind of interesting to think about that you have this passage. Uh, again, I, I think it's more than just the Lord's Supper. No, I don't think there's any yeah. question about that. But to but to disassociate to to say that it's separate and apart yeah. from the Lord's Supper um, uh, would I, I think is it's really a stretch. I used to take that position that that it, it's not connected at all to it, and yet it it, it is connected to Him um, believing in Him, and so when we get to try to tie this together if I if it's possible um, when we partake of the bread and the fruit of the vine and the grape juice why two emblems um, you know what what what's the distinction between those two in likeness well I mean I, I think that one of them is his body and one of them is his blood uh, so connected to his suffering and his life and then to his death, um, uh, yeah. there may be multiple ways of answering that. I think about with the body specifically, uh, thinking about him being having flesh, the son of man aspect of things, being being an actual human that came to the earth. Uh, I think there. I think you also have to think a little bit about the unleavened bread itself being used. You think about back in the feast of the unleavened bread. I mean, that was instituted as a way for them to remember that they left. Egypt in haste. There was not time for leaven and for it to rise, but mm -hmm. with haste, you're going to quick your, you know, get your bread and you're going to get out of here. And I think some of that kind of carries over to our thinking about sin, you know, leaving that behind and yeah. not, not even adding leaven, but just moving on. And, and so, uh, yeah, go ahead. Going back to First Corinthians ten seventeen, Paul makes a play on on the idea of the bread being the body he talks about the bread which we break in verse 16 so he's talking about the actual bread that you eat in the in the ceremony in the observance is it not a communion a sharing of the body of christ and and of course you think first of all about the the body of christ that hung on the cross seeing that we verse 17 who are many are one bread one body we're the one body and so there's this concept of Christ's body. He gives his physical body on the cross, but we become his spiritual body. And as we eat the bread representing his body, we are participating in his body, his spiritual body. We're, we're, we're expressing our participation in his death, his physical body dying on the cross. But we're also saying we're part of his spiritual body, he being the head of the body, which is the church. But it is his death uh, that we are to emulate in putting to death our old man. The, the shedding of blood is, is death. That's what the phrase shedding of blood means, death. It's his death that atones for our sin, and the shedding of blood points to that. And so in, um, in, in drinking the cup, we are expressing the fact that we have become a part of his death and have died to sin. Uh, so I, I I think that's at least part of the answer as to why there's two elements. Yeah, there, there seems to be that emphasis that even uh, in uh, 1 Corinthians eleven twenty three, 23, um, 
and maybe this goes to to free a, a frequency matter, but I think it's still a part of the significance that the Lord Jesus on the same night in which he was betrayed. And so, you know, where where it is intended to draw us to those series of events that transpired affecting uh, his body and uh, the mistreatment of it. Um, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. All right, well, let's turn our attention to uh, the frequency. Um, and where would you like to start? Because well, let's 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 just posit this. Um, in First Corinthians chapter eleven, Paul says uh, in verse twenty-five, "This cup is the new covenant in my." He quotes Jesus. This is this cup is the new covenant in my blood. This do as often as ye drink it in remembrance of me. And um, so the question is. How often is it just however often we feel like it? Was there some kind of regular frequency with which Christians observed it in the New Testament? Is there some kind of regular frequency with which we are to do so today? Well, I think uh, sort of yeah, the so, uh, Oh, go ahead, Chase. No, no, no. Go ahead, brother. You're fine. Uh, so in, in my mind, kind of the immediate obvious answer would be, well, this is a continuation of the Passover, so it would be a yearly annual event. You might think that. That 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 just sort of seems like the default where where I would naturally go if I first time I'm reading through the Bible, um, uh, I might just draw that conclusion. This was one of the annual feasts. You're partaking of it on an annual basis in Matthew and Mark and Luke. In, and so, in, so yeah. in which case, you might think it would be observed when the Jews observed Passover. Right. But in Acts chapter twenty. We have a clear statement in verse six that the feast of unleavened bread or the days of unleavened bread, Passover being involved in that, are past. We're past that. Right. And now we're traveling with Paul as we read along here. And, and they come to Troas. And in verse seven, it talks about the disciples gathered together to break bread. That was going back to Chase's point about the purpose here. They've come together to break bread. And we can talk about what that means. Um, but Luke does specify the occasion and he doesn't specify the day of the month, uh, the day of the year. He specifies that it was on, as our English translations say, the first day of the week, a very literal rendering would be the, the first day after the, after the Sabbath day. And, um, and, and, and so not only was it after the feast of unleavened bread in, uh, Acts, 9, Acts 20 verse six, it is before the day of Pentecost, Acts 20 and verse 16. Right. right. Uh, and so we're, we, we can disassociate it with either one of those annual feasts then. Mm -hmm. And we're a long way away from the third annual feast, the tabernacles in the seventh month. Right. Right. So many of us look at this passage in Acts chapter 20 and verse 7. And, and we see the Lord's Supper here. And there are not a lot of people who doubt that. Most everybody seems to be comfortable with seeing in verse seven in the reference to coming together to break bread, an allusion to the Lord's Supper. I'm I'm sure, and I think I've come across somebody here or there who said, well, that might not be the Lord's Supper. But when I say most everybody sees in that the Lord's Supper, my experience is that's true across various theologies and denominations, whatnot. Um, sure, the phrase break bread can be used outside and was used outside of the context of the Lord's Supper. It was an expression that could be used just for eating. 
but when you have the disciples coming together for the purpose of breaking bread, it is generally recognized this would have been the Lord's Supper. So I, I don't know that we need to spend a lot of time on that. What, what I'm going to suggest is that many of us in verse 7 see Luke's mention of the first day of the week as significant. The fact that it was, as literally it reads, the first day after the Sabbath. And, and so we want to ask the question, I think, is that significant? And if it is significant, why is it significant? On what basis do we conclude it's significant? Talk a little bit about that. Well, so what happened on, like, so as I suggested, my immediate thought would have been the first, uh, the once a year. We, we can very biblically dismiss that idea then from the same greater context. Uh, is there something that would make this a weekly first day of the week event? Like, is there something connected to the first day of the week that would make that significant? All four Gospels place an emphasis on the fact that Jesus was raised from the dead on the first day of the week. Right. Uh, there are various other things that happen on the first day of the week. Some of the early writers, uh, at least one in particular, I think a third century writer, notes that creation began on the first day of the week. And and uh, that's interesting to think about. The sixth day, he completes creation. The seventh day, he rested. And that's the prototype for the Sabbath day, which was the seventh day of the week, seventh day for the Jews. And so if you think backwards, that, that would put the first day of creation on the first day of the week. That's interesting. Um, the day of Pentecost in Acts chapter 2, the beginning of the church, uh, a, a good argument can be made that that was on the first day of the week. There's evidence in 1 Corinthians 16 that the Christians in Corinth were coming together on the first day of the week. Um, and then there's, there's one more thing to consider here. Um, John uses an expression, the Lord's day in Revelation 1.10. And he says, I was in the spirit on the Lord's day. So he's not talking about the day of the Lord, which actually in the original language is a different expression. Uh, it refer, that would refer to a, a day of judgment, a, a, the Lord coming in judgment. But he doesn't say the day of the Lord. He actually uses a different expression in Greek, says the Lord's day. And the expression he uses corresponds to the expression Paul uses in 1 Corinthians 11, where he says, the Lord's Supper. Those two expressions um, both use an adjectival form of the word Lord, Lord turned into an adjective, that occurs nowhere else in the New Testament. And, um, and I'll, I'll say a little bit more about that in a moment. But if we see fit to connect the Lord's day and the Lord's supper, why would it be called the Lord's day? Because as we've already said, it's his victory day over, over death. It's the day he's raised from the dead. Uh, then, then that kind of makes sense to put the Lord's supper as, as belonging to the Lord's day. It's the supper of the day. So yeah. And it's the, it would be the day then that the Lord comes to commune with his people in, in communion. Mm -hmm. uh, mm -hmm. I think that's an important thing. I also thought about this language, guys. Did we talk about how it says in 1 Corinthians 11, for as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes? Did we talk about that? No, we did not. Are you going back I, to I significance? Think, uh, no, I'm, no, I'm not going back to significance. I, I do think that there's something to be said about frequency there. To okay. me, that, that phrasing, for as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. It, again, it would invoke at least, I think, more than just a yearly partaking of the Lord's Supper. Um, I think it would 
it should make us perk up and go, well, I think this is happening more than just whenever they decide to do it. There must be some frequency to it. I have, had people, I have had people read that passage and say to me, what that means is just however often you happen to do it. It's up to you. As no, I so I that's funny because I take it as the opposite. I think because it's on the tail end of Paul reciting what happened in Luke's account in Luke 22, and he, he's kind of upping the ante and saying, So, as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you're proclaiming the Lord's death until he comes. And then he goes, So, whoever's taking this in an unworthy manner, and he, he's kind of saying, Guys, as often as we're taking this, we need to take this seriously. So that's funny. I've always I've kind of taken the other. So way. There's another observation that that I often make, um, and um, I think it was Melvin Curry who first impressed me with this point. Um, Luke, careful uh, historian who writes the book of Luke and the book of Acts. In the book of Acts, uh, he never mentions what day relative to the Sabbath day. We would say what day of the week something was unless he's mentioning the Sabbath day, because, well, it was the Sabbath day and Paul went into the synagogue to preach. And that that is needed in the context, because the point is Paul is going where Jews are when Jews are there, synagogue on the Sabbath day. And so he's looking for Jews. For the gospel is going to be preached first to Jews and then to the Gentiles. So in each city he goes often, he goes first thing to the synagogue on the Sabbath day. But other than that, Luke doesn't mention what day relative to the Sabbath day something happened, except for this one passage in Acts chapter 20 and verse 7. You do have him mentioning on the morrow, uh, you know, and then on the next day and so forth several times, but never telling you what day it is relative to the Sabbath day. Save this one time in Acts chapter 20 and verse 7. And that underscores the fact that Luke must have thought this was significant, that they were doing this on the day after the Sabbath or what we would call the first day of the week, Sunday. So, so okay. what would you say about the fact that Jesus instituted the Lord's Supper, what we would consider on a Thursday night? I would say he instituted it on a Thursday night. <laughs> and, and, and I would say that, that's not the point that's made in the text. The point is that he instituted at the Passover. Yeah. Um, mm -hmm. You know, yeah, it was, uh, I, I think it was a Thursday. Um, but that's not the, the, the text draws the emphasis to it being the Passover meal, Jesus being the Lamb of God. And so well, I, I think that's, a, that's one of those passages that, like, we, we draw a conclusion that it's Thursday, but that's not any, that's not really the, the point of the text in any way. And, and, and I, that's, that's a well-made point, Joe. And keep in mind that in the Old Testament, the Passover anticipated the same thing that the Lord's Supper looks back to. Uh, so you can see Jesus' death on the cross is the centerpiece of this. The Old Testament Passover being saved from death by the blood of the Lamb, anticipating the ultimate Lamb of God. And then the Lord's Supper looks back to that. So it's not so much that the Passover foreshadows the Lord's Supper, but what the Passover foreshadows, the Lord's Supper commemorates. And so there is that 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 um, cent that central commonality there. Even even the fact that it's arguable whether it was a Thursday or not, I think, kind of helps to um, uh, dismiss that as being a significant factor. 
Uh, now, I, I want to say this. Um, y- you know, we look at Acts chapter 20 and verse 7, and we, we, if we make a big deal about, uh, well, it was the first day of the week, somebody will say, well, it was also an upper room. Um, so does that mean if we're going to say we should do it on the first day of the week, we should do it in an upper room? We talked about this a few weeks ago. I, don't, I think we were talking about is there a pattern, and we talked about this question. Mm-hmm. Um, and we saw that in the context, there's reason to mention that it's an upper room. Uh, what's the obvious reason to mention that it's an upper room? Eutychus fell out the window. Mm-hmm. Uh, it was a one floor building. It wouldn't be all that, uh, you know, impressive. Yeah. Uh, right. It would also typically be the most spacious room of the structure. And there are other places where the upper room is mentioned. And, and apparently it was an upper room when Jesus instituted the Lord's Supper. But again, as, as you mentioned, Chase, that was typically the guest room, the place where you would have such gatherings. And there's reason for it mentioning that it was an upper room on that occasion. Um, but there is no reason for mentioning what day of the week it is in Acts chapter 20 and verse 7 that that in the context unless it has some kind of spiritual significance and then when we think about the fact that the first day of the week did have spiritual significance it's when jesus was raised from the dead i think we're right in in making a point of it would 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 john 4 be relevant to the upper room question as well you know the the woman at the well samaria place doesn't matter yeah, Jesus says it doesn't matter where you are. You just need worship in spirit and in yeah. truth. Yeah. Um, yeah, I think so there's some significance there. Back to this frequency question, if I could throw in another uh, mm-hmm. uh, idea. Yeah. Um, Psalm 118 plays a very prominent role in the final week of Jesus. Uh, it's mentioned twice in uh, Matthew 21. It's mentioned in Matthew 22. Um, or... or uh, yeah, and, and 23, at the end of 23. Um, and so uh, the, this, is the, this is the day which the Lord has made. Um, uh, you know, there seems to be a specific event that the psalmist has in mind um, that he references, this is the day which the Lord, well, the Lord has made every day. Um, but there's something about Jesus becoming the chief cornerstone this is the Lord's doing. It's marvelous in our eyes. This is the day which the Lord has made. We will rejoice and be glad in it. You know, all of that seems to be, uh, you know, I wouldn't use this, you know, as the as the sole passage, but there seems to be some event that is going to bring great joy and gladness um, uh, and that is going to proclaim Christ as the chief cornerstone. Well, that would seem to be matching the resurrection. Um, uh, and so there is this special day about mm-hmm. the um, uh, the first day of the week. And obviously, someday ends up being a special day because John calls something the Lord's Day in Revelation right. 1.10. Right. All right. Now, I will tell you that I, I talk to a lot of people who say it's just not as clear to me that we're supposed to eat the Lord's Supper each first day of the week as a lot of other things that are taught in the Bible. And I will grant that. I will grant that I wish that it were said about five times. I, I would, I'll grant that I wish that each time we have an account in the Gospels, the three accounts where Jesus institutes the Lord's Supper, that, that Jesus had said, do this on the first day of the week in remembrance of me. 
And that, that Paul in 1 Corinthians 11, when he'd said, as often as you do this, it would be a lot clearer if he'd said, as often as you do this, which is weekly and every first day of the week, that, that would be a, a lot clearer. Uh, but, but what do we have so far? What we have is Luke does not routinely say what day something is relative to the Sabbath. He does here. There's some reason for that, that there is a, an expression, Lord's Supper and Lord's Day, which linguistically are connected and are unusual expressions in the New Testament. And but they put the Lord's Supper and Lord's Day together. And then it makes sense to understand the Lord's Day as Jesus victory day over death. That is the first day of the week when he's raised from the dead. When, when I have something like that, um, is there merit in asking, well, how did the early Christians understand this? And, and I want to be careful here. Our authority does not come from the second century writers. Our authority does not come from Tertullian or Irenaeus or Ignatius or, or any of those non-biblical writers. But if there is something that I read in scripture and it looks like this is what it means, and then I come to the, the earliest accounts of Christians who were interpreting the scriptures toward the end of the first century, the beginning of the second century. And I see that's also the way they understood it. That has some significance for me. They, they were wrong about some things. So I'm, I'm not at all suggesting that we derive our practice from the early Christians writings of the second century. But, um, I think it's worth noting. So if we could take a moment, just talk a little bit about that. So I, I want to mention four things near the end of the near the end of the uh, first century. This something called the the uh, didache or the teaching of the 12 apostles. And, and in that document, in that writing, it says on the Lord's own day, gather yourselves together and break bread and give thanks. So they understood there was something called the Lord's own day or the Lord's day. And by the way, he uses the expression there that Paul uses in 1 Corinthians eleven twenty 20 for Lord's Supper and that John uses in Revelation 1, 10 for, for Lord's day in, in Greek. It's the same expression. Um, all right. So, so you've got a passage there connecting someday called the Lord's day with the time you, you break bread, talking about eating the Lord's Supper. About the same period of time, near the end of the first century or the beginning of the sixth, second century, you have something called the Epistle of Barnabas. Not really written by Barnabas. No, nobody believes that. But nonetheless, there, there are things in there describing the practice of early Christians. And it says that early Christians keep the eighth day. The eighth day would be the day after the seventh day or the day after the Sabbath, which is the expression that is translated in our Bibles first day of the week. And then uh, about A.D. 150, or midway through the second century, Justin Martyr is talking about the practice of, of Christians in his day. And here's what he says. Um, he says, I think, I'm, am I still, I, my screen just disappeared, so I hope I'm still with you. Am I still with you, guys? Yeah, yeah, yeah. All right. So Justin Martyr says this. He says, on the day called Sunday... By this time, there was this association of this day that is after the Jewish Sabbath with the sun. 
On the day called Sunday, all who live in cities or in the country gather together in one place or to one place. He talked about the various things they do. He said they they uh, they bring out bread and wine, and he also mentions water. He says there's distribution to each and a participation of that over which thanks has been given. And he says Sunday is the day on which we all hold our common assembly. And he connects this with the fact that Jesus was raised from the dead on that day, on the first day of the week. So he does the same thing that we've been doing, looking at scripture. He says, we connect the fact that Jesus was raised from the first day of the week with the fact that we assemble on the first day of the week. And he says, we eat the Lord's Supper, in essence, when, when we do that. And then one last uh, reference, and that is to a man named Cyprian in the third century. Now, to underscore the fact that we cannot go to these writers and just say whatever they said is right and we believe it. Cyprian is defending infant baptism in the document I'm about to quote. But as he defends infant baptism, he gets to talking about the day when Christians assemble and he says it's called the Lord's Day. He associates the eighth day, the day after the Sabbath, what we call the first day of the week, as the Lord's Day. You put all of that together, and what you have is four different witnesses testifying to the fact that from the late in the first century on down through the second century, there's a unanimity of, of testimony that Christians understood they were supposed to come together on the day after the Sabbath of the first day of the week and commemorate the Lord's death by eating the Lord's Supper and that that was the Lord's day. So I, I say all of that to say, if I think I see that in Scripture, and then I see that's also what first century Christians at the end of the century and second century Christians understood they got from scripture. That's, that's comforting to me. And, and might I throw in the, the reverse of that, looking at the scriptures that we have considered thus far, how comfortable would I be simply not partaking of the Lord's supper or what would be the basis for me partaking of it on a different day in light of all of the evidence that I have? Um, uh, you know, I think just uh, my conscience would bother me more. And, and maybe this isn't going to be an argument that's going to persuade everybody. But my conscience would bother me more after seeing all of this evidence to say, well, but I don't know absolutely for sure. So I'm not going Right. It, it seems pretty impressive. Um, right. uh, so, um, yeah. I, 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 I can, if I eat the Lord's Supper on the first day of the week, I can say I know I'm doing what Christians in Troas did. Um, if I say, well, I think I'm going to do it every third Monday, I've just made that up. Right. So. Okay, uh, well, so we've talked about the significance of the Lord's Supper and the frequency. Um, it seemed like we, I, did I see some chats come in, some questions come yeah, in? Yeah, I'm not sure we have no. a few minutes time to deal with all No, we don't, we don't have time to deal with that. Yeah. Um, okay. Okay, well, all right. So just to, to sum it up, folks, I, I'm going to summarize at least my approach to this. I, I see three points. One, um, as far as the frequency of the Lord's Supper is concerned. One, Luke makes a point of the day that they did this. And, and the day that he highlights happens to be the day that Jesus was raised from the dead. Um, Luke doesn't normally make a point of such days. 
Why did he do it? Secondly, uh, the first day of the week is um, apparently the Lord's Day, which is mentioned in Revelation 1.10, which just linguistically is connected to the phrase Lord's Supper. And that would put the Lord's Supper as the supper of the Lord's Day. And so those two facts alone point me to the idea that first century Christians ate the Lord's Supper each first day of the week, Lord's Day. And then, uh, then you look at the writings toward the end of the first century, non-biblical writings toward the end of the first century and the second century, and people were doing the same thing. They were connecting the fact that Jesus was raised from the dead with the observance of the Lord's Supper on the first day of the week, which they understood to be the Lord's Day. Um, and so if we if we draw that conclusion, we can say we're not the first ones to draw that conclusion. People 2,000 years ago were drawing that same conclusion. So, all right. Okay, uh, well, Lord willing, we'll see you all next week. Uh, maybe we can get back on track with some consistency here and um, be Just with you all from week to week. A quick, quick shout out to Drew. Thanks for taking care of us in the, in the times that we were... Um, uh, not able to be on here live. Yeah. All right. So Lord willing, we'll see you next week. We hope you enjoyed today's Bible Quest. If you have any questions or comments, please go to BibleQuest.org and click on the Submit Questions tab near the top right. If you'd like to learn more about God's Word, we also offer a number of resources, including online Bible courses. You can click on the links at the end of this video or visit our other website, bible-moments.com. There you can find videos on different topics, as well as choose from a variety of Bible courses that are available on demand at no cost. Thank you.